I'm reading from Luke's gospel tonight. We're letting Welcome to That's Luke's what gospel said. set the terms for our Advent Galileo season Christian in this new liturgical Christ. year. Galileo and you might remember that last week I said Luke uh, actually tells us, the story of two impossible births at the opening of his gospel account. Especially two impossible babies that grow into two really strange kids. And then two adults who are each obsessed with their religious inheritance and with this new thing that they can see God doing. And Luke artfully weaves those two stories together in his gospel, but we are regrettably separating those strands over these weeks of Advent with apologies to Luke's careful arrangement. And so tonight we continue the story of John the Baptist that we started with his birth last Sunday. This is the Sunday every several years when I get to tell my Christmas card joke. You know, I used to send Christmas cards, and for years and years, I signed my name to the ones that said, peace on earth and joy to the world. But then I decided to just stop and wait for someone to make a Christmas card resonant of John the Baptist in Luke's gospel that just says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because honestly, for a preacher in this season, it's a whole mood. (laughs) So from Luke chapter three, verses one through 20, here we go. It's also a doozy. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, well, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also 
asked him, and we? What should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them saying, uh, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A content consideration for this sermon. There is a tiny bit of medieval gore in the opening two minutes. Two minutes. Now, some of you are just waiting like, ah, really? <clears throat> Don't let anybody tell you the gospel is not political. Consider Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey, a disciple of John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, but John the brother of James, both of them fishermen before Jesus called them to follow him into a life of preaching and embodying the reign of God. Remember that John? Polycarp, the Apostle John's student, rose in esteem among the very early Christians just a generation or two, like a generation and a half after Jesus. And Polycarp caught the attention of the imperial government as a seditionist, as one who defies and upsets the established governmental power structure. And in 155 CE, Polycarp was arrested and tried in a stadium in Smyrna. If you're ever tried in a stadium, friends, it, that is not gonna end well. His prosecutors asked only one thing, that he affirm the lordship of the emperor, i.e. that he should say Caesar is lord over all the earth, or even they said just over his own life, or even they said just over the ground that he was standing on. Say that and he could go free. He would not. Polycarp was burned at the stake. Or at least they tried to burn him 
But according to one of those two wild-to-be-believed martyrdom narratives of the early Middle Ages, his body would not catch fire. So they had soldiers stab him to death instead, and his blood gushed out and extinguished the whole fire. I don't know. I don't have a real dog in that hunt. The point is, he was dead. And for the lack of saying three words, Caesar is Lord. Polycarp died at the hands of the same empire, different administration, that executed Jesus a little more than 100 years before. Because the gospel is inherently political. Because politics, most fundamentally, is about the distribution of power. About who has it and who doesn't who makes decisions, and who has to obey those decisions once made. When the prophet Isaiah said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he was declaring a regime change, a new and permanent redistribution of power someday. In other words, a political reality eventually. And John, this time the Baptist, the one announced by Gabriel, over whose birth his daddy sang of redemption from oppressive enemies, the one who ran away to the desert to study and pray and ready his own heart for the coming of the Lord, not Caesar, glaringly not Caesar, when he found himself in Isaiah's ancient words, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, John knew that it was time to engage the powers and oppose them. He knew that it was time to get political. Luke knew it for sure. When Luke sets the stage in chapter 3 for the adult John's grand entrance, returned from the badlands east of the Jordan River, it is a political scene that Luke establishes. See how hard he tries. In the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of the regions of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, that is the setting for the word of God coming to John way out yonder, and that is the day he decided it was time to come on back. Luke could have just said, John went away for a while, and then one day he came back to civilization to start his preaching. But instead, he went to some trouble to describe the politics of the day. Who was the emperor, and who were the emperor's representatives in the contiguous regions where most of John's religious kin were concentrated? And, importantly, who were the religious authorities? of that day, the high priests, the ones who themselves knew Isaiah's prophecies by heart but had traded in their yearning for a Messiah, for a little piece of the Pax Romana, a capitulation to empire, a nasty collaboration with the powers that be. Religion in bed with government has forever been a foul and dangerous affair. Amen. 
So John came out of the desert ready to rumble. And it was not long before reports of his preaching reached the ear of Herod, one of those tetrarchs who still called himself a king, but whom Rome had designated something lesser, a local official allowed to keep some nominal trappings of power after conquest, but really only for show. Herod was left wishing for more, chronically coveting what he would never have and so he turned his attention to getting whatever he could, including the wife of his brother. We don't have a transcript of John's preaching concerning this move, but in my imagination, that preaching is about so much more than extramarital sex, about so much more than a concern about whose body parts belong with whom. Because for one thing, I don't assume Herodias, as she was unimaginatively called, as if she had no name of her own, had any say at all in the transaction, in the transmission of her body from one house and bed and domain of a husband to the house and bed and domain of another husband. So I'm thinking adultery isn't really the right category here. Herod's theft of her from his brother was a petty demonstration of petty power, the wag of a penis to assert authority. And John would have called it what it was, I imagine, a pathetic political grasp. I mean, this is the preacher, after all, who called his congregation a brood of vipers and berated them for coming to hear him at all. He's not afraid to make people mad for the sake of his <clears throat> good news. Well, whatever John said, it landed him in Herod's dungeon, never to be seen again. Only remembered in the gospel narration a few chapters later when the corrupt system eliminates him completely. Herod's personal embarrassment finally giving way to state-sanctioned violence, which is how empires always resolve conflict that threatens their superiority complex. So what about the ordinary people? The crowds of nobodies coming to that river to be baptized by this voice of protest. What about the non-tetrarchs, the occupied non-citizens of Rome, the ones not governors or high priests or anybody whose names we would remember? What, after calling them snakes, did John say to them? Did he speak of politics and power, of sedition and overthrow? Did he call for rising up in rebellion, following him into the perils of speaking truth to power? He did not. And, and they asked. They did. The crowds asked. What then should we do if we take to heart what you say about the coming of the Lord who is not Caesar? If we heed your call, what does it look like in action? It is the hard part for the preacher sometimes to make actionable what she has worked so hard to make articulate. But John, 
John had a ready answer. What should we do, they asked, and I wonder if his answer surprised them. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. And when two specific subsets of workers asked him the same question, what should we do, they might have thought he'd have different answers for them. The tax collectors asked, and what should we do? Tax collectors, of course, being employees of the empire, enforcing the oppressive tax code that always left the poor poorer. Don't cheat people when you collect their taxes, John said. Do the math. Take what's fair. And because repetition is genius when you're teaching somebody something this hard, Luke records the question one more time, third time's the charm, this time from the soldiers, probably, probably local mercenaries who acted as armed law enforcement for those tetrarchs, definitely much hated by the people they policed. And what should we do, they asked. Don't bully people, John said. Don't extort their lunch money by threatening to get them in trouble. Just be okay with what you make for doing your job. Do you see what I see? That every time when John is asked how to manifest the soon coming reign of God in the actual life of a human being on the ground, he gives an economic answer. Even out the basic necessities so no one has extra clothing and food when others have none, he says to the crowd. Do your job in fairness to all, he says to the tax collectors. Don't use violence or the threat of violence to get more than your share, he says to the soldiers. Be content, be fair, share with each other. This is how you ready your life. This is how we ready the life of the world for the coming of the Lord. And it's interesting, huh? That John, who has no trouble speaking truth to power, no problem subverting the authority of those with authority to imprison and eventually execute him, when it comes to ordinary people with ordinary workaday lives, has a much less revolutionary exhortation. Be content, be fair, share with each other. It sounds rather innocuous next to whatever he said about Herod and his brother's wife. It does not sound like the kind of rhetoric that got Polycarp martyred. Except that politics and the economy are and always have been inextricably entwined. Political power is a hungry beast that eats money. I remember George W. in the days after 9-11 telling us all to buck up and go shopping, literally, as a signal to the world that U.S. America is resilient and unbeatable. 
President Biden is shaking in his shoes right now over inflation, giving speeches to persuade us to not be afraid. Sounds like Gabriel, be not afraid. To go ahead and have a bountiful Christmas, he says, knowing that perceived economic weakness is the surest, swiftest path to political defeat in elections to come. Governor Abbott cynically shifts his politics to the cruel extreme and regularly, reported in the New York Times just yesterday, blocks out eight-hour days for fundraising by phone to lock up dollars for his aspirations in Texas and beyond. Power and money, money and power, you cannot have one without the other. So that John's recipe for readying one's heart for the coming of the Lord, be content, be fair, share with each other, is about money, yes, but not only about money. It is, yes, about the literal resources required for living, about money spent and money taxed and money earned, but it is also about the power represented by those literal resources. The power to hoard extra when some people have none or not enough. The power to maximize profit just because you can the power to boss and harass and pressure people smaller than you to give you more than your fair share. Money is power, and power is money. And while the coming of the Lord challenges and subverts the powers that be, the coming of the Lord also challenges and subverts the economy, my own personal economy. How much money I have, and how much I keep, and how much I want, and what I would do to get more. Be content, he said to the soldiers and to me. Be fair, he said to the tax collectors and to me. Share with each other, he said to the crowds and to me. And so it becomes a subversive mantra in my own household and in our church, yeah? As we talk frankly in this space about money and power, power and money, economics and politics, as we grow in our understanding of politics and economics and the gospel's claim on both, as we exercise our contentment muscles in this rented space with all its junky furniture, as we exercise our fairness muscles in this space, not asking anyone to do more than their share, as we exercise our sharing with each other muscles here. Here we rescue each other from the clutches of that ravenous economy, 
the system that demands more of our lives than we ought to give it, the monster that stokes our craving for more and then sucks us dry, demanding more and more work, yielding less and less rest, leaving us exhausted and unfulfilled, as hungry as Herod for more than we ought to have. Here, we celebrate contentment over consumption and explore the possibility of fairness in work and rest and share with each other so that no one suffers for want of the basics. And if you keep that up, John said, if you keep that up, you'll be ready for the coming of the Lord. Get ready, you beautiful, beloved brood of vipers. You'll be ready. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.